I'm not bragging or stretching the truth when I say that my colleagues here at Outside get out a lot. One of our gear editors trail ran the Grand Canyon from one rim to the other and back. More than a few of our editors have completed the brutal 40-mile ski mountaineering race in Colorado known as the Grand Traverse, and our content meetings are filled with thru-hikers, ultra-marathoners, big wall climbers, and big wave surfers. So it's no surprise that every so often, we pursue stories about each other, which is how we ended up with this episode. Producer Marin Larson, who works on the Outside podcast, reached out to me and told me about the harrowing experience involving senior editor Abigail Baronian on a summer rafting trip. We decided it would make for a great story for Out Alive, so Marin got to work. If you enjoy this piece, you can listen to many others like it on the Outside podcast, so I encourage you to follow the show if you don't already. So from Out Alive and the Outside Podcast, we bring you a story about one of our own editors, a cautionary tale about how even for seasoned adventurers, the littlest things can be the biggest threats. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. I think early on, immediately after being stung, I was like, maybe this is going to be sort of interesting. Like, maybe there's something interesting here. And then when I was like in the pit of despair, I was like, absolutely not. Like, there's nothing interesting here. This is not cool. I don't like this. When senior outside editor Abigail Baronian was stung by a scorpion at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, her first thought was that it might make a good story. Initially, before her symptoms became strange and frightening, it didn't seem like something to worry about. Just one of those things that happens when you're in a wild place that you'll laugh and regale your friends about later. But as the situation developed, it started to feel like she was living through a true-life survival tale. My name is Abigail Baronian. I grew up in Washington State and spent a lot of time in the Cascades with my parents and brothers and in the Olympics and grew up skiing and backpacking and swimming and fishing. And yeah, I have always spent a lot of time outdoors. And then this summer started spending a little more time on rivers, which took me into the Grand Canyon, which is the scene for our story. In June 2022, Abigail hiked from the south rim of the Grand Canyon to Phantom Ranch to meet up with more than a dozen of her friends. She was going to tag along for the last 10 days of a 16-day trip down a 225-mile section of the Colorado River. A Grand Canyon trip is the holy grail for many river rats. Remote, stunning scenery packed with incredible views and Class 5 rapids. Her first week was both beautiful and challenging. Incidentally, hiked in with COVID, um, which I didn't know at the time. 
but later discovered with a PCR test after I got off the river. Fortunately, everybody on our trip got COVID before I got down there, so I didn't get anybody sick, but we'd been an exciting trip with health stuff. And the COVID details relevant, I promise. With just three days left in the trip, the group made camp at Whitmore Wash, a popular resting spot along the river. We're camped out at Whitmore Wash. It's crazy hot, like 115 midday. And so my friend and I had dumped a bucket of water out on the sand and then laid out this canvas mat, hoping that the evaporating water would cool things down. And we're sleeping with our Paco pads a couple feet apart, and I just have a sheet pulled over me. It's maybe like 10.30 at night, and we're laying under stars, pillow talking. We had just started to, like, you know, nod off and, like, say goodnight. And he feels something crawling on his arm. I was like, what the fuck is that? Get it off of me. And I flicked it off of me. But inadvertently flicked it directly onto me. And it went right into Abby's bed sheets. Like full speed straight onto my thigh. And whatever it was stung me immediately. Pretty soon she was screaming. I was like, oh fuck, that didn't feel like anything I've ever experienced before. She was complaining of this kind of like burning pain. And immediately like rolled over to try and stand up. And as I was rolling over, I'm tangled in the sheets with whatever it is that's stinging me. And it gets me on the other leg. And I was like, I'm sure it was just a wasp or a red ant or something. But honestly, it felt pretty big. We had been searching for scorpions with black lights the previous couple of nights just because it was fun. And if you didn't already know, scorpions glow fluorescent under a black light, like you're at a rave. So it's really fun to look for them. So I knew these puppies were around. And so we started looking through her sheets and I turned on my headlamp and we're looking through the sheets and we're looking through the sheets. And then finally, like, I like looked over and my headlamp fell on the sand. And we see this little scorpion with its little pinchers like straight up in the air. And it's just scuttling away. And I was like, oh, shit. And Abby's like, oh, my God, it's a scorpion. Incidentally, this friend is outside contributing editor, editor at large, Grayson Schaefer, just to just to put some blame on him and the, and the public sphere. Because who throws a scorpion on their sleeping friend? And Grayson smacks it with a flip-flop, and it dies, and we're like, great, we know what we're in for. <laughs> Everyone was asleep at this point, but we called over two of our friends that were on this trip with us just to be like, hey, this thing happened, like, what do you think? And one of them uh, has a woofer. Woofer, spelled W-F-R, stands for Wilderness First Responder, a certification given to those who complete training for how to respond to medical emergencies in the backcountry. It's standard for guides, search and rescue professionals, and even the military. He actually had been stung by a scorpion before, and he's like, yeah, you know, people tell you it's it's no worse than a wasp sting. I do think it's worse than a wasp sting. Like, I got stung by a scorpion and woke up the next day. It was, like, really feverish. My joints were really achy, but you're going to be okay. And, and I was, like, not really that freaked out. It hurt really bad. Um, and the pain at first did feel reminiscent of a really bad bee sting. But I was like, whatever, I'm going to wait this out. It's going to suck, like, but I'll be okay. And they monitored me for anaphylaxis because that would be the thing that would kill you if you got stung by a scorpion, and I knew enough to know that. Anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction, and it can kill you, though it's an exceedingly rare response to a scorpion sting. If, as an adult, you're unlucky enough to encounter a deadly species of scorpion, heart or respiratory failure would be the most likely cause of death. But worldwide, of more than 2,700 documented species of scorpions, only 30 or so can be fatal for a healthy adult. And none of those are generally thought to live in the United States, which is why Abigail and her friends were unconcerned. 
So without much other to do than wait it out, Abigail's friends got her a cot to sleep on and they went back to bed. I'm lying under the stars and they go to bed and I'm like, man, my tongue feels kind of funny. And it was like this weird, like cooling sensation across the tongue. And I was like, that's, that's weird. And I had taken an oxy that a friend had in his med kit in case like something big and serious happened outside. And I'd taken it because I was like, I know this is going to hurt really bad. And I was like, maybe it's just from the drug. Like maybe I'm passing out. And it got really hard to keep my eyes open. I was like, okay, I'm going to fall asleep. And then I got this like crazy sensation that started to spread over my whole body. Like, like all of my limbs were asleep, like my face, my neck, my back, my arms, my legs, and my chest started to get really tight. And I was like, okay, this is kind of scary, but like, I have venom in my body. Like, this is just what venom feels like, I guess. And then I like <laughs> opened my eyes and realized that I couldn't see the stars my eyes wouldn't track so I would open open my eyes and my eyeballs would just like roll around in my head and I didn't have any motor control over them and that was when I started to get kind of freaked out so I knew that scorpions that they had a neurotoxin that was like a word that we had thrown around after I got stung and so I was like okay it's gonna maybe like affect my nervous system but I didn't expect it to do what it did which was totally impair all motor function like very seriously it turns out the neurotoxins in scorpion venom work by making your nerves hypersensitive, causing the sodium channels that are supposed to open and close to transmit messages to get stuck in the on position. This can cause extreme pain and make some movements difficult to control. In Abigail's case, her brain would tell her eyes to move, and instead of moving a little, they would move a lot. But she didn't know any of this at the time. All she knew is that she was trapped in what felt like a horrible dream. I don't know if you've ever had a nightmare where you're like trying to run away from something, but your body like won't respond or you like open your mouth to yell and like nothing comes out. And that really freaked me out. And so I went to wake up Grayson and I was like, tried to say his name and it wouldn't come out. I like had to think really, really hard to get my vocal cords to engage and actually say the name and when it came out I could hear my voice and it sounded really weird and like pinched and slurred. Like she was very very drunk. And I was like oh shoot like something really bad is happening. Meanwhile the points on my legs we think it stung me three times twice on the first leg and once on the other and it stung me kind of at the top of my thighs and where it had stung me was like on fire, like pulsing, just like kind of the pain that you would imagine. But then the rest of my body was like tingling. And if like, even if like fabric brushed it, it would like make me yelp because I was so sensitive and my skin felt like it was like on fire. And so I'm just like as uncomfortable as I've ever been in my whole life. And try to wake Grayson up to be like, hey, you know, I'm having a really serious reaction. I think you guys are gonna have to consider evacuating me, And but it's like two in the morning. And, and he started kind of talking through what that would look like and you know, that we couldn't, we couldn't get an evac until the morning. And I was like, I can't actually communicate with you to discuss whether I think I need an evacuation because I can't really speak. So like, you're gonna have to talk to everybody else about this and like, I can't make this decision for myself. And he was like, I bet you'll feel better by the morning, but when the sun comes up, we'll talk about it everybody else is asleep and I'm just sort of like, except for when I wake him up alone in the world. This is where a lot of people would start to panic, but Abigail was determined to stay calm. 
in that period, kind of between maybe like midnight when the really scary symptoms set in and I don't know, maybe 5 a.m. when the sun rose. And I was just kind of there alone with my thoughts and my cornucopia of uncomfortable sensations. I did my best to not let a thought loop happen where I would like ruminate on the same thing because I knew that was dangerous both for my experience and my mental health, but also was was worried that a panic loop was going to make it so I couldn't breathe. And then I would actually be in, in more serious trouble. But kind of the like arc of feelings and thinkings was like, when will this be over? I'm so miserable. I want my mom, basically, that like, I'm so sick. And <laughs> I just want somebody to come in and like, tell me it's going to be okay feeling. And then um, I would sort of like dip a toe into the pool of panic of like, do I have neurological damage? Like, what's this going to look like when I get back home? Am I going to be able to, like, have a conversation with my boyfriend? Am I going to be able to, like, go for a run? Uh, like, what what are my limitations going to be? Like, what's really happening to me? And I would dip into there for a second, and then I thought of it as, like, as if someone was tightening a lid on my chest, like like a jar lid, and I'd feel like it screwed tighter, and I'd be like, okay, got to get out of that pool. And then I would just focus on my breath. And like, that was really the only thing that I could do to sort of observe my thoughts and sensations rather than like be a prisoner to them. Honestly, like, and sorry, mom and dad, but I have spent some real like concerted time uh, experimenting with psychedelics in the last few years. And I think that my experience taking psychedelics really was helpful in this context. They gave me a lot of practice in like taking a situation and being like, this is what you're experiencing right now and it's uncomfortable and it's weird and you don't have a lot of control over it, but you're gonna be okay and it's it's gonna pass. But yeah, I, I did honestly think of it as a bad trip and that helped me get through it. Even in these wee hours of the morning, alone with just her pain and her breath, Abigail knew she didn't want to be evacuated. In part because it's amazing down there and I didn't want the trip to end like that. And I, it felt like a, an affirmation of how serious this was if I had to get hellied out and I didn't really want to believe that it was that serious. And so I'm like sitting there, laying there, suffering, being like, okay, by morning I'll feel better. And then dawn broke and I watched the sky get light and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm like just as bad as I've been. She was scared because she felt just as bad as she did when she went to bed. Of course, then we realized that, the, you know, from 10.40 at night to 4.30 in the morning is really not that long a time for the venom to wear off. And so uh, we thought maybe we could just allow her to wait it out until after breakfast. And that was when a few other people got involved. We had someone on our trip who's an EMT, and he came over and took my vitals. And what was really encouraging was that my vitals were steady the whole time. Other than being paralyzed, she was more or less okay, which seems weird to say. I never had like a really elevated heart rate. If anything, everything was lower. My body temp was really cool. My breathing was really slow. My heart rate was really slow, which sort of tracked with the entire experience of just feeling like I'd been really slowed down. And I kept thinking too about this visual of like a bug in a spider web and how you like get paralyzed. And it was just, yeah, it was really interesting to be like, wow, the venom is real, it was like really effective. And if something wanted to kill me right now, it could and I would have no defenses. And that was really, really interesting. 
Around 7 in the morning, my vision got better. I could open my eyes and actually like look at someone in the face and see their face and not have my eyeballs do the weird roving thing. And also my speech improved. And by that time, someone else had used the sat phone to call a good friend of ours who is an ER nurse and teaches woofer courses and her partner who is a former Grand Canyon guy. And they were looking up the symptoms and they were like, this, like, this isn't supposed to happen. Like somebody who gets stung by a scorpion shouldn't have like full body paralysis. And they both immediately were like, evacuate her, that's not normal. But then they both did some research and found that the symptoms that I was having, while very uncommon for an adult, are pretty common for a small child. And like if a little kid gets stung by a scorpion, it can be really serious. But this sort of like systematic neurological response that I was having wasn't totally unheard of for a scorpion sting. And that made me and I think everybody else feel a lot better. But even with the knowledge that Abigail's reaction wasn't completely unprecedented, she was mostly immobile and in a lot of pain. And the decision about whether to evacuate her still hung in the air. I was still totally miserable. Anytime somebody touched me, I would cry because I was so sensitive. Even just like a, a down sleeping bag, like brushing against her skin was like intensely painful in this like altered state that she was in. We were trying to decide, do we try to let Abby tough it out and play through, or do we push the red button like they do in Alone and have a helicopter come in and fly her out? But I was like, okay, I don't think I need an evacuation. I think I'm going to process this. Like, it's going to be more traumatizing to get helicoptered out of here and, like, be alone in a hospital and flag stuff. And then the group had a discussion, and they decided that if I didn't want to get evacuated, they weren't going to evacuate me either. They're not going to, like, force me onto a heli. Sometime, like, mid-morning, she started to improve. She was able to see a little bit. She was able to feel a little better. And so they put me on a boat. We didn't have any super scary water that day, and they put me on a boat with our best rower and a person on either side of me. And I just, like, laid there all day and, like, couldn't really move. And they, like, had to, like, pick me up and, like, put me on the boat. And then when they set me down, I would just cry for a couple minutes because it was so uncomfortable. Um, But... Throughout the day, symptoms continued to improve, and by the time we got to camp that night, I was able to walk. I think I think it took until, like, dinner time for me to be able to walk without somebody, like, there to sort of steady me. But then by the next morning, I could, like, carry my bags and move my stuff around. And, like, within about 24 hours, she was completely back to normal. Yeah, I had, like, tingly hands and feet for a couple of days, and then think I've made a full recovery. I still am really sensitive and, and was for a few weeks after that to, like, things that would normally make my... my my limbs fall asleep happened quicker. Like one night I woke up and my face had fallen asleep. So clearly my like nerves were sensitive or or something. But yeah, that's the whole story. Or it's almost the whole story. At the time, Abigail thought that the scorpion that stung her belonged to a common and relatively harmless species. But when she tried to find an explanation for her unusually severe reaction, she began to realize that she'd had a closer call than she'd thought. When Grayson Schaefer saw a scorpion scurry out of a pile of crumpled bedsheets after stinging his friend Abigail Baronian three times, his first instinct was to swat the creature with a flip-flop. I thought two things. One... We need to save the scorpion in case we have to deliver it in the helicopter to the paramedics who will rescue Abby. Or two, I need to get it mounted in some cute way as a keepsake for her. 
For the record, my impulse was not to kill her. <laughs> she can go on with her life, but unfortunately now she's my prisoner. I went directly to taxidermy. I found like a bottle of formaldehyde so that she can keep it for all time. She's like smaller than my thumb <laughs> and just totally wrecked me. It turns out Abigail's little prisoner would be essential to helping her make sense of what happened to her in the aftermath. Because like any good journalist, once she was back to work, she started asking questions. I'm an armchair scorpionologist. I, pr I process my trauma through research. Her curiosity about her tangle with the scorpion led her to a kind of fascination with her attacker. What's interesting and cool to me is that her little pinchers are like so small, like she doesn't look very scary. And I learned that scorpions with smaller pinchers have more uh, toxic venom, more serious venom. And the bigger the pinchers, like the scarier the scorpion, the less powerful the venom because he needs his pinchers to hunt. Clearly, Abigail's scorpion had some really good venom if it could immobilize a healthy adult for nearly 24 hours. Abigail's experience left her with a lot of questions that she just couldn't leave alone, starting with, why did this sting affect her so much more than it should have? So she dove into research, reading papers about scorpions, trying to get to the bottom of it. At one point, she listened to an episode of the comedic science podcast, Ologies, that focused on scorpions and featured Lauren Esposito, curator of arachnology at the California Academy of Sciences. So Abigail reached out to Lauren to share her story and get an expert perspective on what happened. So long story short, I was on a trip in the Grand Canyon and was stung by what I assume is an Arizona bark scorpion. It's probably a reasonable assumption. Yeah, I actually have it in like a little jar if you wanted to see a picture and tell me if I was right, but um, feel pretty safe in that assumption. And Abigail went into her conversation with Lauren armed with a slew of questions about what she assumed was a non-lethal species of scorpion that is common and widespread throughout Arizona and southwestern New Mexico, Centuroides sculpturatus, or the Arizona bark scorpion. But pretty early on in the conversation, there were signs that she might have something else on her hands. So what I would say is that your reaction to the scorpion venom is, is a pretty unusual one. And it's like a pretty extreme case. It's actually probably the most extreme case that I've heard of in people telling me their stories and stories that I've read about scorpion envenomations here in this country. Interesting. <laughs> but... It's not entirely dissimilar to the kinds of reactions that we see occurring in close relatives of the Arizona bark scorpion. And I mention this because there's been a few instances that we know of where close relatives of the Arizona bark scorpion have been moved through human activity accidentally into parts of Arizona. And these scorpions are pretty much all distributed in northern, in sort of northwestern um, mainland Mexico, and there's about a dozen of them that, that are capable of delivering lethal envenomations to adult humans. And so when you mentioned that you have the specimen, I would actually be interested in taking a look at it to determine whether it is really an Arizona bark scorpion or whether it's one of these really very rare instances of a, a, another species being inadvertently introduced into um, the desert southwest in the U.S. side. But still, Lauren was pretty sure it was an Arizona bark scorpion. Maybe Abigail's reaction was because she was recovering from COVID and immunocompromised, or because she was stung three times. 
Regardless of what kind of species it was, Abigail wanted to know more about the scorpion that stung her. Because while this was a bad night for Abigail, it was certainly the worst experience of the scorpion's life. So if we're talking about a female scorpion on a moonless night in the middle of the summer, who probably just came out from whatever crevice she was hiding in. And to be quite honest, like if you were sleeping on a piece of canvas, she may have crawled in there the morning before. And when you opened things up, like she was like, oh, like I'm free again. It's nighttime. Like, let me get out of here because I was like trapped in this moving object on the river all day. So what, but what she would be doing, aside from getting away, if that was indeed the case, is out looking for some food. Bark scorpions are typically sit and wait predators, so they'll just like find a tree or a plant to hang out on. And they're called bark scorpions because oftentimes they're found like under like the bark of dried trees because that's like the crevice that they hide in. So like being in sheets, for example, is like prime time for Arizona bark scorpions. Like that's their one of their favorite places to hide when it comes to human habitations because it's kind of like the bark of a tree. So it's just right up their alley for like a perfect like hiding spot or crevice. So she'd be like out eating. Like she's probably already made it at this point for the year. Um, and so she'd just be kind of doing her thing. When Abigail got off the call, she sent Lauren a picture of the scorpion. I had her record what happened next in a voice memo. So I have been texting with Lauren Esposito and um, I sent her just photos of the scorpion in a little jar of formaldehyde. Pretty immediately, she was like, it is a bark scorpion, probably Arizona, but the view from the top will confirm. And then when I sent a photo of the top of the scorpion, she was like, that's actually maybe not an Arizona bark scorpion. Um, can you get a picture of the head? And so I, I pulled the scorpion out of this little jar of formaldehyde um, and sent her these really close-up videos, pulling the arms out so that you could see the head. And um, she texted me back and said, I'm pretty certain that this is not Centroroides sculpturata. In other words, not an Arizona bark scorpion, but likely one of its far more deadly Centroroides cousins from northern Mexico. For Abigail, this meant that she was envenomated by a far more dangerous critter than she realized. For scientists studying scorpions, it brings up a number of questions. Is this a one-off incident? A lone scorpion that was perhaps transported outside of its normal range by human activity? Or has a new population been established, meaning that the United States is now, for the first time, home to a deadly species of scorpion? Does this scorpion even belong to a species we know about, or could it be a new one? Abigail plans to send her specimen to a scorpion specialist at a university in Mexico to verify the exact species. Meanwhile, she has emerged from the experience relatively unharmed, but not unchanged. You know, I came out of it and was like, am I traumatized? Like, do, do I have some stuff to work through? And I think all told, I came out pretty emotionally intact. I will never sleep out again. Um, I just don't, I, I've always thought of, of bugs and snakes and arthropods and little creatures as just like they're not going to bug you if you don't bug them and, and just haven't really given them much, much thought other than like awareness, right? Um, but this was sort of this moment of like, oh yeah, there are things in the backcountry other than your own poor decision making or clumsiness that can really hurt you. And so have a little more respect for the critters. In the end, Abigail's friend and flinger of scorpions, Grayson Schaefer, may have summed it all up best. Mistakes were made. 
Scorpions were thrown. Everyone lived. Thank you to Abigail Baronian and Grayson Schaefer for sharing your stories with us. Thanks also to Lauren Esposito and Dr. Leslie Boyer for sharing your expertise. This episode was a collaboration between the Outside Podcast and Out Alive and was produced by Marin Larson with editing by me, Louisa Albanese, and Michael Roberts. Music and sound design was by Jason Patton. Out Alive is brought to you by Ricola. Out Alive is made possible by members of Outside Plus. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com slash pod plus. Now is a great time to join. We're offering new members a 50% discount for a limited time. 